This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm sitting down with Jeff Ryan. Jeff Ryan is the author of A Mouse Divided, How UBI Works Became Forgotten, and Walt Disney Became Uncle Walt, and Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America. He has been published in Salon, Slate, Fast Company, Wired.com, and All Things Considered, and he has been featured on NPR's Marketplace, Time, Forbes, The New York Times, The Economist, The Independent, and Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He lives in Bloomfield, New Jersey, with his wife and two daughters. A lifetime gamer, he has reviewed over 500 video games and covered four console launches as the game editor for Catrillion, a popular dot-com-era news and entertainment website. He swears that his books were not undertaken to write off family vacations to Orlando on his taxes. A note on today's episode. In recording this episode of Technically Human, our human interlocutors encountered some technical interference. None of this at all alters the brilliance of Jeff's comments. And now for some exciting news. We are launching a series of live events on ethics and technology scheduled over the next few weeks. Those events include an important and urgent conversation with Dr. Rashawn Ray on race, policing, and tech, a screening of the new documentary, Coded Bias, followed by a Q&A with the director, Shalini Kataya, and a fireside chat with former CIA agent and NSA advisor to Joe Biden, Yael Eisenstein. Yael served as the global head of elections integrity operations for political advertising at Facebook and has since become one of the company's leading critics. All of these events are free and open to the public, but space is limited. Check out our website, www.etcalpoly.org, for more information about the events and to reserve your spot. Once again, that website is www.etcalpoly.org. We hope to see you there. And now, on to my conversation with Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Deb. So, Jeff, when we were originally corresponding about this conversation, I had mentioned how much I loved your book on Super Mario, and I asked if you wanted to come on the show to talk about Super Mario video games and your work broadly. And you wrote back to me that you were, and I'm quoting you here, assuming we'll talk more about the ludology of play than which Mario Kart racer is the best. What do you mean by the ludology of play? Ludology is the fancy Latin word for the study of play, not just play via video games, but the the whole human endeavor of playing. The whole learning is fun stuff. That's gamification. That's a way that you can learn repetitive subtasks by making them enjoyable and pleasurable. If you've ever folded laundry and decided, okay, I'm going to do the towels first because they're the biggest, and I'm going to save the socks until the last bit because they're covered up, and then I can see which socks are which and match the brightest colored first, that's gamification. You've made a task more enjoyable and more fun by turning it into a series of mini games. And why do we do that as human beings? What's 
what's in it for us. It's how we learn. It's fantastic. It is how we learn how to do things. When people say learning is fun, they're gamifying. If learning isn't fun, you're not going to learn. And is there a relationship between the ludology of play and ethics? Yeah, there can be because every game has rules. And if you don't follow the rules, it seems like you're cheating. But sometimes the rules themselves are wrong. There's a game, it's not a video game, but a, a French card game called Mealborn, where you have mile cards. And the more mile cards you put down, the closer you get to finishing your race and you win. Sometimes you can't put down miles because someone has played an attack card on you. And you have attack cards too. You can play attack cards against other people. I was playing this with my family last month and I decided I didn't want to attack my family because I love them. So I decided not to play attack cards. This broke the convention of the game, which said that you're supposed to attack. And they felt attacked because I did not attack them because I was taking the path of non-resistance. And they were like, you're making me feel guilty. I'm playing an attack card here. So I went outside of the game by not playing the game by the official rules. You know, I have a question here, a writer to writer, you write about video games, I write, and I, I have not found a way to gamify writing. <laughs> Is there a ludology of writing <laughs> that, that you would recommend? And, and maybe how did you start writing about video games? Was there a ludology for you? In terms of writing, I can't write and edit at the same time. Those are different hats for me. So whenever I put my editing hat on, I go, oh, who wrote this nonsense? This is garbage. I got to clean this up. <laughs> but, but you need to be wearing the writer hat to write stuff and think this is gold and then put a different hat on. It's like, oh, I got to I got to clean this up. I got to tidy this mess. But uh, how I fell into writing video games, I was a copy editor for a website during the dot com boom and they had a vertical on video games and there weren't many people who were clicking on this vertical. But if we pretended that they were there, because if we had it, people had to have clicked on it. They weren't clicking on it, but we pretended that we had an audience of people reading this. And so I was required to play and review video games. So I fell into it. And what made you want to write about Super Mario? I had tried to write a coffee table book about the whole history of video games. It was a very big endeavor going back to 1972 when the first video game Pong, the first proper game, came out. And I couldn't get that sold, but someone said that a, a narrative nonfiction book would work better. And the best way to cover almost everything in gaming starting from 1980 on was to write about Nintendo. And if you're writing about Nintendo, 85% of Nintendo is writing about Mario. And so I decided that Super Mario would be my avatar, the way he's an avatar for millions of other gamers. The full title of the book is Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America, which I think offers us a particular intersection of not one story, but two stories, the story of Super Mario, but it's also a story about American culture, not just what made Super Mario a successful game, but how this game interacted with particular events and cultural movements in American history and how it may have impacted then the direction of that American history. What made Super Mario so successful in the landscape of American culture? And how did this new technology alter American history and culture? He was the right character at the right technological time. Beforehand, your characters were people like Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man. They were so geometric that you couldn't really think of them as people, as things you could identify with, or they were spaceships, or they were cars. And even then, you couldn't even tell it was a car. You were just told that this rectangle is supposed to represent a car. Mario was the first character who looked like a human being, a very specific 1970s human being, but still 
a, a human being. So people got to think, oh, this is, I can be a person. That one particular person is a guy who looks like he's still got an eight track of Jethro Tull in his car, but still a person. And where do you think that gaming, in particular Super Mario, fits into the broader development of technological culture, particularly in the United States? Honestly, because it's made in Japan, but bought and enjoyed in America, I feel like it paints America as a nation of tech consumers instead of as tech innovators. That's kind of become our, our global role. We buy all of the great stuff that the rest of the world invents up. Does that intersect with other kind of capital forces of technological production that you see as trending in the future? Or is that kind of counter to the mode of technological production in other arenas? Because I think about, on the one hand, we have Silicon Valley as the center of technological production for the world. In fact, innovations and thoughts and designs that are developed, particularly in that space, particularly for a certain segment of users in that particular space, then get exported globally. And what you're talking about here with the development of video games is almost the inverse. Silicon Valley and the United States becomes a distributor of technologies developed elsewhere. Yeah, I, I guess it's it's wonderful to talk about American innovation, but when we're talking about Mario, it's the facade of Americanism because it's an American character, but it's made by a non-American company for a global audience. So the world is thinks it's buying America, but it's really buying one country that's trying to sell to the whole world by looking American. And do we have a sense of how other parts of the world imagine American culture from Super Mario? Are there things that we can draw out there that crystallize certain stereotypes or caricatures about how the rest of the world understands the United States? There was one little controversy in 2017 when Super Mario Odyssey came out. He goes to lots of different worlds, and in each world he gets superpowers by putting on different hats. So there's a sombrero that he wears in this frozen desert world. And a picture of Mario wearing the sombrero in the frozen world was on the cover of the Super Mario Odyssey game, and that was nicknamed Mexican Mario. And people thought that it might be offensive, so Nintendo in another edition of the game removed Mexican Mario and put a generic Mario image in. And that in turn got the actual Mexican gaming community upset because why have you taken away Mexican Mario from us? And what was the outcome of that controversy? Mexican Mario is still off. If you buy Super Mario Odyssey now, you can only play as Mexican Mario. You don't see him on the cover. We're getting to what I call the thorny question section of the podcast. And these are a couple of questions that are a little bit thorny as I think about them when they come in the intersection of gaming. And when I was reading your book, I couldn't help but think of an article that had stayed with me since I read it in the Daily Beast in 2014. The article was titled, Your Princess is in Another castle, nerds, and misogyny. And to give you some context, the piece was published shortly after a man shot up a sorority house in Santa Barbara and posted a manifesto proclaiming that he did it for revenge against women for denying him sex. The piece has stayed with me and it resurfaced in my mind in the wake of the recent Atlanta shootings, which I think many people understand to have similarly misogynistic undertones, among other things. The title of the piece takes its reference point from the classic Super Mario Brothers game, the line that appears when Mario discovers that his quest for the princess 
process has been in vain, that he has to keep on searching. And it is meant to encourage players to keep going as long as possible to pursue and to acquire the princess. The author of that piece in 2014 goes on to say, and I'm quoting the piece here, the overall problem is one of a culture where instead of seeing women as, you know, people, protagonists of their own stories, just like we are of ours, men are taught that women are things to, quote, earn and to, quote, win. That if we try hard enough and persist long enough, we'll get the girl in the end. Life is a video game in this context, and women, like money and status, are just part of the reward we get for doing well. He asks, so what happens to nerdy guys who keep finding out that the princess they were promised is always in another castle? When the persistent, passive-aggressive, nice-guy act fails, do they step it up to elaborate Steve Urkel-esque talking and stalking and stunts? Do they try to elaborate the revenge of the nerd-style ruses? Do they tap into their inner John Galt and try blatant, violent rape? And I know this quote is long, but I just want to conclude here with the argument of the piece that, quote, in a culture that constantly celebrates the narrative of guys trying hard, overcoming challenges, concocting clever ruses, and automatically getting a woman thrown at them as a prize, as a result, there will always be some guy who crosses the line into committing a violent crime to get what he deserves or to get vengeance for being denied it. Jeff, I I realize that this is, again, a long quote, but I guess my question here is about the undertone of gaming, even its most innocuous forms, and I think we could call Super Mario Brothers its most innocuous forms. Your book acknowledges the the gender dimension of gaming, but I wonder if you've thought at all about this particular dimension of the games themselves the narratives that they so oftentimes tell, the narrative that Super Mario turns on, that your princess is in another castle, that the gamification of it is the continued pursuit of that princess. Are we reading too much into Super Mario or is this mythology in the game connected to some of the larger cultural problems that this piece and others are concerned about? There's a part of ludology that talks about this. They've called it narrativology, which is a fancy way of talking about video game storytelling. So from a narrativology point of view, the goal of Super Mario Brothers is to rescue Princess Peach, and in turn, you need to rescue all these other princesses beforehand who say, sorry, Mario, your princess is in another castle. But in ludology terms, the goal of Super Mario is to continue moving to the right, because that's all the game really is, a series of obstacles and opponents that you need to overcome and jump over and defeat in order to keep moving to the right. It's a a side-scroller. So the focus of most video game designers is on the ludology side of things, just on how the gameplay works. The story is is really secondhand. So when people talk about the the impact of Mario in games, the game designers weren't thinking about the story very much. The story came at the 11th hour, but for the people playing the game, often the story becomes as important as the gameplay, if not more important. So I think that the narrativology study is worthwhile in this case. There's been some modern Mario games that have tried to give Princess Peach some agency. So in some paper Mario games, you get a session where you play as Peach and she escapes from the castle herself. But the overall story is the same thing every time. 
Peach gets kidnapped by Bowser, who's the evil villain, and then Mario needs to rescue her. And you can come up with all sorts of original takes on that story, but the bare bones are always the same. And they've been the same for hundreds of years. It's the fairy tale. Yeah, I guess I can't help thinking as a narrative scholar about the fact that that narrative does have a long history and that if the gamification is simply keep the character moving to the right of the screen, there's a lot of ways to narrativize that that don't depend on this particular archetype or this particular mythology. And I wonder about the kind of the gender dynamic in the process of game creation itself. One of the things that I talk a lot about in the context of engineering and design is that we design for the stories that we know, that before anything can be created, we first have to imagine it. And that because we know that we design in light of the stories that we know, and that people will design from their own perspective, it's really important to think about who does the imagining, what kind of stories are told, and what larger cultural narratives that story then captures, echoes with, and then reproduces. And I wonder if there were more women involved in the, the activities of gaming creation, which historically has been a more male gendered domain, whether we would have a larger spectrum of stories rather than your princesses in another castle. A while back, I was at the DigiPen Institute, which is a video game college, and they talked about how there were about 300 students that year, and there were 13 women among the 300. And one of the reporters who was female said, 13 out of 300, shouldn't there be more? And the man who ran the college was very proud and goes, no, no, 13 is more. We've doubled the amount of women in the last couple of years. And this is a long time ago, and hopefully gender e equality has, uh, has balanced things out to closer to 50-50. Why do you think that there is, if you've just suggested 13 is in itself kind of progress. Why do you think that there is that gender dynamic in video game production? It reflects the, the gender imbalance in our whole society. I grew up watching the Muppets. Can you name three female Muppets? Uh, everyone knows Miss Piggy, and then Janice is the cool girl, and then we're, we're out. There is no third female Muppet. And the toy designers of the 70s and 80s quickly learned that if you made female toys, even if they were male toys as well, that the male toys wouldn't sell because the female toys meant that this was a girl toy. The whole line was contaminated by the presence of a girl. And do you think that that's changing at all? It's changing a little bit, but if you Google Wolverine action figures, you'll get about 18,000. If you Google Storm action figures, you will not get anywhere near 18,000, and they're equally good characters. You know, it's interesting. I used to teach a class on guilty pleasures, and I'd sometimes teach, in the context of that class, cultural criticism on video games. Uh, at the time, Lara Croft had recently emerged as what some were calling the first female character in a video game who was not a damsel in distress, a, a, a vulnerable victim of violence to be rescued by male heroes, a princess in another castle. Is Lara Croft a feminist advance in video gaming, in your view? She was one. She's a, a female avatar. And people, male and female, wanted to play the game because it was a great Indiana Jones-style adventure. But there were still way too few of them. Nintendo's one of their few female-led games, other than the Metroid series, which is fantastic and has a female narrator. Uh, they made a game called Super Princess Peach. And there is a whole seminar just about Super Princess Peach because she is an emotional character, the way she's portrayed 
right? And her emotions are her superpowers. So when she gets upset, she gets upset so much she starts crying and her crying can put out tears and she can walk over a fire field by putting them out. When she gets angry, she actually shoots out fire, things like that. It's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this because the year of the shooting and the article in the Daily Beast was also notably the year of what has been called Gamergate, a kind of major epical moment in the history of gaming and its intersection and dynamic, oftentimes very unhealthy with, with gender. How were you thinking about Gamergate at the time? And in the years post Me Too, has your thinking changed at all as you reflect back on that moment? What do you remember? <laughs> My answer is going to wind a little bit, but it's going to be for a reason. So there was a game designer named Zoe Quinn, and she came up with a game called Depression Quest. And you don't need $100 million in a AAA franchise in order to make a game. She did this solo by herself. She made a hypertext game. If you imagine just a plain old web page with no art, just a bunch of text and a couple of links, which would then take you through a series of other text pages. It's like a choose your own adventure game. And what she did in Depression Quest was tell the story of someone trying to live their day. And at the bottom are four choices, one of which is get up and take a shower, one of which is stay in bed, go back to sleep, one of which is just feel bad about your current state of existence. And the get up and take a shower choice was crossed out and the radio button for it doesn't work which means that you are given three choices and one of them is a choice you literally cannot make. The game prevents you from making it. And that is how she decided to show what depression felt like from the inside out. You know what the right thing is to do. You literally can't do it. You have to live with the lesser choices instead of the best choice. And it, it's really a phenomenal and very simple gamified way of showing the crippling effects of clinical depression. And Zoe Quinn is one of the people who was at the heart of Gamergate because she's one of the people who was harassed horrifically. And I, I read her book, Crash Override, and in it, she talked about how she's known almost exclusively for being harassed instead of for being a video game developer. So I wanted to, just for a little bit, put the focus on her as a video game developer and the stories she was able to tell instead of on her victim status. Has your thinking about Gamergate at all changed since that moment? Have you, it reflecting back in a post-Me Too moment, returned to that moment of Gamergate? Maybe for the audience who's not familiar with it, can you say a little bit about what Gamergate was and what it did in terms of its impact with the gaming community? There were a lot of people in what would normally be called the alt-right who decided to attack and dox. And doxing means talking about the physical location and phone number of a human being being who is on the internet but doesn't have, you know, has anonymity. They remove the anonymity from a person. And what they said, what the Gamergate people said they were doing was complaining about ethics in game journalism. This is not what they were actually doing, though. What they were actually doing was harassing a woman who spoke out about harassment. And over the years, since then, we've seen the Gamergate sort of people get elected to the highest office in the land and try to raid the Capitol building. So I've thought about Gamergate a lot, unfortunately. I think everyone is 
is aware that there's a sort of toxic thinking that that leads you astray. You were talking about the importance of, of stories and storytelling. Cory Doctorow talks about uh, weaponized storytelling, where if you tell someone the wrong story, the story where they are the victim and there is a powerful enemy who masquerades itself as an unpowerful enemy, that you can get a group of people to hate almost anyone for almost any reason. Once you detach logic from it and every proof that you're on the wrong track is indeed then turned into proof of a greater conspiracy against you by everyone you dislike and you're more right than ever, then I don't have an answer for how this can be fixed because we as a society, I don't think have an answer yet. If I did, I wish I could share it. You know, when I was a kid, I was really into gaming and I've been thinking a lot about this lately in the context of starting this ethical technology initiative and thinking really about the relationship between ethics and equity and how some folks end up in the humanities and what makes some folks end up as English majors as I did and what uh, ends up with allowing some folks to become engineers. As a kid, I loved Super Mario Brothers. I loved Tetris. I loved Legends of Zelda. I played one of the first iterations of Frogger, of Lemmings, if you can remember that, of Mission Striker, anything that I could get my hands on, both because I loved it and because it made me look so cool in the eyes of my similarly aged male cousins, all of whom played video games and all of whom I desperately wanted to like me and think that I was cool. But I didn't have a lot of friends who were girls who gamed. For one thing, it wasn't part of feminine culture at the time. And for another thing, the video games were, and I think they still tend to mostly be, perspectively and narratively aligned with standard masculine points of view. Case in point, your princess is in another castle. There might be more stories that seek out perspectival alignment with women's stories, but I think even now it's it's not gender equitable in terms of that kind of distribution. And for me, by the time I was in middle school, my male cousins were gaming with a lot of agility, which then translated when they got to college into learning how to be agile around computers and to code. Meanwhile, I learned to love reading and literature and poetry, which I don't regret at all. I I still love reading and literature and poetry. But when I got to college, the agility that had been built up by boys in my age group translated into them feeling at ease in computer science classrooms. While when I took my first computer science class, I opted out after seeing that so many people seemed to be more dexterous in that space. It made me think a lot about the ways in which gaming culture creates inequities very early on that ultimately translate into massive social divides, particularly in the tech sphere, which then, of course, translate into massive financial divides. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my job as a professor in the humanities. I love my object of study. And I'm very grateful that my training as a humanist allows me to think in certain ways. But I think it's commonly acknowledged that gaming specifically and technical knowledge, particularly in the digital space, a space that rewards the kids who learned agility and computing early, frequently through gaming, provide significant hiring possibilities, financial freedom, and upward mobility. Folks who don't learn that agility can't access that arena. So how do you see gaming fitting into this larger socio-political, economic, and gendered framework of outcomes? Well, just on the economic side, the new PlayStation 5 costs $500. On eBay, you can get twice that for an unopened PS5. And it's close to $400 if you want to buy a Nintendo Switch and play a game because the games are $60. On the other hand, 
phone games are free, but you have to then watch a whole lot of advertisements. So you get to play for two minutes and then you have to watch 30 seconds of an ad. So there are games for the haves and there are games for the have-nots. And that's just from a very American point of view because I'm counting the have-nots as people with smartphones. And in the rest of the world, those are clearly the haves. So we're in a very economically striated society. So when someone talks about how they love Red Dead Redemption 2, it's not quite a humble brag, but it is saying, and by the way, I have this much discretionary income and I have this much free time in my life to enjoy this game. But I guess the question that comes up for me is that it's also not just what you have the time to do or the technological means to do. It's also that which you gain social capital for doing and that which you are compelled to do because other folks, you know, are doing it. And I guess the economic dimension that I was interested in was the way in which graduating with a Bachelor of the Arts, I found myself in a position where it took me a couple of years to get a job. Whereas if you graduate with an engineering degree, there's kind of a job already out there for most folks, for many folks waiting for them, which then kind of allows for economic stability um, then purchasing power. And then that translates into a continuous salaried growth. I think that, as I said, I love my job as a professor. I'm so grateful for the way that English literature compels me to think in certain ways. But I do wonder about the financial disparity that gets cultivated through that career trajectory. And I wonder about the links between that trajectory quite later on and the very early moments when some of us are tracked into potentially being able to succeed in those in certain dimensions of those things. Right. The decision that someone else made 30 years ago is the one that ultimately impacts your life most of all. I'm reading Mark Bittman's book, Animal Vegetable yeah. Junk, all about uh, yeah. the history of the world via food. And he talks about the Oklahoma land grab and how all of these great ranches that are currently around that are feeding America and the rest of the world began with giving away free land, 100 acres at a time, and it was only for white men. So there are all of these industries where people don't even think that they've gotten any sort of advantage for being white or any disadvantage for being black, where it is completely biased. There is no possibility that you could be in 1860s a black rancher. And so I'm thinking about those sorts of inequalities too. They've done studies about the girls and boys in high school that are taking STEM classes. And there are in some places more girls than boys who are graduating from high school and then college with STEM degrees, and Mm -hmm. then they can't get jobs. And why do you think that that is? What happens in that track? I think women have an extra chance that men don't have. I've never actually talked about this before. It's just something that's in my head. I think a lot of men walk around thinking of themselves as creators, and they think of women as the sustainers. The women Mm -hmm. stay at home, and the, the men go out and bring home the bacon. But that is a very gendered way of thinking about it because if you describe who is the creator, male or female, the females are the creators. The males are the sustainers of the life that the females make. And thinking about the the world in terms of male creation is an illusion, but it's an illusion propagated by centuries and millennia of, of men because we don't want to think about us as inherently secondary creatures. And do you think, I mean, I wonder, you know, to go back to the narrative, which I frequently 
we do probably obsessively so as a narrative scholar. This is something that I think about, and I don't know whether I am reading, so to speak, too much into things as a scholar of literature, or uh, whether I'm reading something that might actually be there. Is there a link between the kinds of narratives that are perspectively aligned with a typically kind of male protagonist point of view and the desire to play games to begin with? I think so. There's a very male sort of achievement in an accomplishing a small, easy to get goal. So when you play a game, it's 10,000 small, easily attainable goals. And then once you get all of them, you get the big giant goal. And often there's a boss at the end. And if you look through and see the the pattern of attacks, you can defeat this seemingly insurmountable problem. So if you just pay attention and do a little smart thing, then you're able to conquer any challenge. And not any challenge is like that. There are a lot of challenges that can't be conquered by thinking real good for 20 seconds. But if you solve 10,000 problems that way, that's your hammer and everything in the world starts to look like a nail. And all you need to do is, is say the right thing or maybe the exact wrong thing at the right time and boom, you don't have one problem anymore. You have a whole different problem. You know, it's interesting as somebody who loves solving small problems, case in point, <laughs> I love the small rewards that I get from folding laundry. I absolutely have to gamify it in order for me to do any of it whatsoever. I'm not yeah. sure that that's particularly gendered one way or another, the desire to solve small problems. I mean, my God, the times that I have folded my laundry rather than going over to, to write the last chapter in my book manuscript. I think that at this point I'm doing laundry simply so that I don't have to write the last chapter of that manuscript and I hate laundry. And so I don't know that the uh, gamification part or the attempt to solve small tasks is necessarily gendered, but I do think, you know, I think about, for example, Mission Striker and I, I think about Mario and I think even about Lara Croft, who is in, of course, a, a female avatar, but she also is a female avatar of a particular kind of body that is desirable for men. Laura Croft is a great example of the strong female character, the strong female protagonist who's mm. doing all of the stuff that guys do, but you know, basically in underwear while doing sexy mm -hmm. poses. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know that she represents a particular female point of view. I just kind of wonder if there had been more women's stories incorporated. And I think that there's certainly ways to gamify and create adventure out of women's stories. I, I wonder if that could have been something that would have compelled me to want to kind of stick with it or would have created communities of women's gaming at, at the time that I was growing up or, or currently right now. I'm less familiar with the landscape of gaming right now and what that looks like, what kind of stories are being told. But I'm curious what you think. When World of Warcraft and the other online role-playing games started, a lot of people, including me, assumed it was going to be some sort of Ayn Rand objectivist paradise because mm -hmm. here is someone who is just their value according to how good they are at something. And if you're level 30 and I'm level 25, I have to acknowledge that you're better because you're five levels mm -hmm. better than me at this. And you certainly have more more riches and you have better weapons and you can go on better raiding parties. But what so many people did when they were playing, including a large amount of women, was they decided, I don't want to play this game. I will play a different game using this architecture. So I'm going to build a house. I'm going to build a community. I'm going to help people out on their quests, but I'm not going to go on the quests the game is telling me to go on myself. So I want to switch gears here and talk about something else that's been on my mind. A few months ago, 
The New Yorker ran a story on QAnon in which in the story, the digital editor of the magazine interviewed Reed Berkowitz, who's the founder of a multimedia company, Cybernautics, and the director of the Curiouser Institute. Berkowitz repeated a claim that I'd heard elsewhere, notably by Adrian Hahn, who's the CEO of a gaming company called Six to Start. And both he and Berkowitz made the claim that QAnon is essentially an ARG, that is an alternate reality game or some form of an ARG, a game that you play on your computer, frequently a game that would have a kind of narrative built in of a treasure hunt. And that narrative then starts to bleed into the real world to gather clues and interact with other people and other characters. That perfectly describes QAnon. I think that the allegation about video games, even violent ones, leading people to do violent activities in real space have been largely litigated already. But the link between ARGs and QAnon made me return to the question of how video game interaction bleeds into the way that we think or that we narrate or that we act in real life. What's your take? Games are the new sports. They're the male alternative to war. England basically stopped conquering the world when it discovered footy. But what you're describing kind of sounds like you're looking at real life, but you're not seeing real life. You're just seeing a fictional story, a story that mm -hmm. you prefer mm -hmm. to real life that you want to take part in. I mean, it's not just games. It happens in tabloids too. All of the people who are on tabloids are being treated and having their actual lives treated like fictional soap operas. And there are some people who are okay with this and they try to gamify the fact that the paparazzi is hounding them by saying, okay, here is this fictionalized version of my real life that you can now take pictures of and tell the world about. It's not my actual true private life, but it's the one I'm going to give to the public as my private life. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. similarly with QAnon, I I think people just prefer to imagine a fake world instead of the real one. It's basic, it's what prejudice comes down to. It's not seeing people for what they really are. It's, it's taking your own suppositions and stereotypes and saying, that's who this person is. It's not what my eyes are telling me. It's what uh, my brain has decided months ago. Do you think that there's something about the platform of video games specifically that allows for the kind of pernicious blend of reality and fiction that QAnon followers thrive on? Or do you think that this is kind of a more basic narratological response insofar as we live the stories that we know? And if we have a story that seems very realistic to us that we can map onto reality, we start to to live in that story. I think it's it's human and it's not technological. Way before video games were around, McCarthy was doing it. And before him, it was uh, Father Coughlin before World War II. So mm -hmm. we're we're always going to have people who are, are telling us you're right and uh, the outsiders are wrong. What are some of the ethical questions that you think about in your thinking on gaming? I think about how we're gamifying our life and why. Like I've been on Twitter for 10 years and I, you would not know because I hardly ever post anything. I see Twitter as a game and a horrendous one at that. And mm. one of the worst things about it is that I'm still there and I barely ever participate, but I think about participating all the time. This mm -hmm. is my line of thinking. The goal is to win. And the way you win is to get likes and retweets. 
the way to get likes and retweets is to say something negative because negative gets more likes and retweets than positive. But not enough people look at me directly. So I need to respond to someone else, but I don't want to offend that person. So I need to respond to someone else and then say something bad about a third party. That's the optimal way to get likes and retweets. That's the way to win the game of Twitter. And I don't want to do that. But why am I still there if that's the express purpose of Twitter, according to me, at least? What is it specifically that worries you ethically about the gamification of our lives, particularly uh, on social media? Well, I don't think I'm the only one who sees Twitter that way. Uh, a lot of people are trying to raise their follower count. And this goes mm -hmm. across all social media, not just, not just this one platform Twitter I'm talking about. So if if the game is designed where being mean gets you more points than being nice, then we're raising a generation of mean people. If passing on an untruth gets you more click-through than passing on the truth, we're raising a generation of, of liars. But of course, there's another way to think about it, which is that if the ethical question is the outcome of the game and the outcome of the game being, you know, this kind of negative predisposition to gathering likes and putting inflammatory information on your Twitter account so as to garner more likes. That could be addressed by changing the rules of the game, right? If Twitter were to say, for example, we're going to alter our algorithms so that we'll add a happy button and the people who become happy happiest by your tweets or the tweets that get the most happy button responses, right? Get elevated. That would be changing the rules of the game and that might make us better citizens. So is it the fact that we are predisposed by the current algorithmic system to send out inflammatory information or is it the gamification itself that concerns you? It's the gamification itself. Our, our brains are just, you know, bags of chemicals and and there are, are ways of releasing dopamine and serotonin and I like dopamine and serotonin. So Twitter is a way of of releasing that. Oh, I see a little I see a, a little red thing, which means someone responded. Oh, I see a little blue thing, which means someone else responded in a slightly different way. So I like the, the bursts of that. So I'm still drawn to try to get more of those little bursts. Sometimes mm -hmm. when I go on the platform, I think, what am I actually looking for? Because I don't really care if one person retweets me or if a hundred people do, but I love the, the anticipation of finding out what's going on. And that's the, yeah. the little chemical burst in my brain. Where do you think that the technology of gaming is going? One thing I'd love to see, there's a Mario Maker game where you can design your own custom Mario levels. And you can do all sorts of crazy, amazing, horrible things for poor Mario because uh, you can put him in a room where there's no way out, where he starts to drown, all sorts of stuff like that. But you can't change Mario himself. His jump is always going to be the same. Assuming he's six feet tall, he can jump 12 feet directly in the air. So what I would love to see is for Mario to lose a little spring in his step. So on level one, you clear the board incredibly easily. And then maybe call it level 40, when Mario just can't jump quite as high he used to when he's at level 30. But that's okay, because you can still jump plenty high. And then you get to level 50, and Mario's like, oh, I can't jump high at all. I used to be able to jump really high. And then you get to level 60, and, and it, you can't jump at all. You just find other ways 
ways of, of getting around the obstacles. And by the time you get to level 70 and 80 and 90, Mario is now old and, and just being on the board is a victory in itself. So I want to see Mario get old. I, I want to see someone tackle aging so that kids who are playing is like, oh, I understand why, why grandpa can't get up and hug me the way he could a couple of years ago, because it's just, it's just too hard for him. Is this kind of Mario for the age of aging boomers, or is this just a kind of extension of the very narrow framework that gaming seems to address, which is young people for young people? Right. Or Mario, who exists forever as a, a like a 45-year-old, but you feel like a kid when you're playing him. And he's been around for so long now, over 40 years, that people who played Donkey Kong when they were kids now are old enough to have not just kids, but grandkids. So there's now three generations who have been playing Mario. So he can not just teach people how to be kids again, but teach kids what it's like to eventually age and mature. I have a fair number of students who I know are thinking about going into game design and production. What makes for a good video game? The world's greatest video game designer, Shigeru Miyamoto, who made Donkey Kong and, and Mario, loves gamification. So he went on a diet a number of years ago and he loved the idea of getting on scale every morning because he was able to check his progress and was something he only did once a day. And that became the video game Wii Fit, which was a huge hit for Nintendo and helped a whole lot of people get healthier. And he loved gardening and and that eventually became a game called Pikmin, which is so far removed from gardening, it's insane, but it does take place in a garden. So that's his version of gardening. He liked the idea of tending plants and looking in on them every day and seeing how they grew and changed. So it's, it's hard to come up with something simple and fun and yet new, but people are still doing it. Portal is one of the best games of the last decade or so, and it's a very simple idea. There's a woman named Chell. She has a portal gun. It shoots out blue and orange uh, doors, for lack of a better word, and mm -hmm. or portals, I guess, would, would be the optimal word. And you go through one end and you pop out the other. So if mm -hmm. you're in a room with a chasm, you can put a blue door near you and an orange door on the other side of the chasm and hop over the chasm by bending the rules of gravity by wrinkling through through time and space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of puzzle rooms that, that you can go through when you're playing Portal. And there's lots of other fun things with it, like uh, great special effects and, and great voice acting and funniness. But the actual gameplay, the ludology, could have been done on an Atari 2600. No one just mm -hmm. came up with the idea until recently, until 10 years ago or so. You know, I find some of these new games so fascinating. I have a friend of mine who plays with his son a game I think it's some form of like Jurassic Park. And essentially, most of the kind of graphic violence of Jurassic Park has been edited out of the game. Your task as the kind of manager of Jurassic Park is to make sure that dinosaurs are fed properly, to make sure that your admissions levels to the park are kind of equivalently calibrated. And I was watching him play and I said, essentially, so basically what you're doing is administering dinosaurs, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's kind of just like a bureaucratic process of checking through the park, like middle management sort of 
thing here. And I thought it was so funny because if you broke it down, that's essentially what the game was. It was figuring out the administration of this park here. And I, yeah. I kind of, it kind of took my breath away that this was a popular game that people played on hours uh, at a time, you know, playing like a, I, I think about my department administrator who gets paid a lot of money to essentially wrangle academics who sometimes are more grouchy than uh, the dinosaurs in that park. And it just seems there, so funny to me. There are a series of soccer games basically released in England where you're not just playing soccer, but you're managing the soccer club. And mm -hmm. what you were talking about is is the game is just spreadsheets. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's managing a salary cap and making sure people get to the right place and the invoices get paid. And it's like, this isn't fun unless you care, <laughs> really care about the football club that you're writing about. So why do people play? Because they've, they've gamified any task. Anything uh -huh. can be enjoyable, uh, no mm -hmm. matter how awful it is. You know, all of the parents who said, I'm never going to change a diaper. That's just repellent. It's disgusting. And then cut to them with the six-month-old and they love it. This is one of their most favorite times of the day because there's mm -hmm. a child who is in need and you're able to, to take care of them, to nurse them, to fix that need. Well, listen, anytime you want to collaborate on a game to change a diaper, to create... <laughs> I was going to, uh, you know, I would procrastinate writing my book manuscript <laughs> uh, by changing diapers, which gives you a sense of how much I dislike <laughs> writing the last chapter of this manuscript. Anytime you want to work out a strategy to gamify that, perhaps we can do that and then, you know, pitch it to uh, Nintendo, see whether Sounds or great. not we get somebody else to... <laughs> Right, that last chapter. One last question to circle back to our initial correspondence. Now that we've talked about the ludology of play, the ethics of video games and everything in between, which Mario Kart racer is the best and why? Oh no, you saved the worst question for last. Oh, there's no <laughs> one great answer to this. But if you want to find out the best racer for you, start a regular game with Mario and do a, a couple of laps, a couple of circuits, and then figure out what you'd like more. Do you want more speed, meaning your fastest uh, ability to drive? Do you want more acceleration, meaning to get up to the top speed? Because you can then customize your, your rider and your ride to, to Give you better or worse stats but you need to know what it is you're looking for in the first place so well, if you're playing against other people they're going to knock into you a lot more than the computer so when you're playing against other people you want more acceleration well there you have it mario as an avatar for self-discovery figuring out the real you your wants and needs uh, jeff thank you very much for this conversation thank you deb this was a huge amount of fun